You may be seated, please. song goes on to tell us, now it seems to me some fine things have been laid upon your table, but you only want the ones you can't get. Your pain and your hunger, they're driving you home, and freedom, oh freedom, well that's just some people talking. Your prison is walking through this world all alone, and then as the song comes to a close, it says you'd better let somebody love you before it's too late. If you didn't know, those are the words from the song Desperado, sung by the Eagles. And the words could have come from Luke chapter 15. Because in Luke chapter 15, we find a man who's looking for the fulfillment and freedom the world seems to offer. And yet he's been given many, many fine things in the world. And what we find is he he goes out and finds just how empty it is. As he seeks the things that he thought would find fulfillment in the world, it drives him back home by the pain and the hunger to the one who truly loves him. I want you to turn with me in your Bible to Luke chapter 15, where we're going to be looking at the story of the prodigal son. Now, this is a parable that is so familiar to so many people that you may be sitting here this morning saying, I don't even need to pay attention because I already know how the story ends. But what I want you to do this morning is to look with me at Luke chapter 15 with fresh eyes. I want you to look at this parable as if you've never seen it before. And what I also want you to do is to put yourself in the story. I want you to ask yourself, which of the two sons represents you? And where in the story as one of the sons are you? As we look at Luke chapter 15, what we find is uh, this is a continuation of what Michael was talking about last week. Now, it's a separate parable. There were two previous parables that Michael walked us through last week in Luke chapter 15. And both of those talked about God and his great love for us. And as this chapter began, we saw in verses 1 through 2, it said, Now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. See, the theology of the the religious leaders in the day was the only thing God wanted to do with sinners was destroy them. He was this distant, far-off, judgmental God, and when he saw a sinner, he wanted to wipe them out. Now, what we see is that it's not just your garden-variety sinners coming, but it says even the tax gatherers. Now, the tax gatherers were the, the worst of the worst in that day. These were the, the people who were working with Rome. They were the, the people who were seen to be traitors to the nation of Israel. And it says even those Jesus is talking to, not just talking with, but it says he's sitting down and eating a meal with them. Now, that's no big deal to us today, but in that day, eating a meal with somebody was the highest form of fellowship. It showed this intimacy 
where Jesus was sitting with them. And this is why they're grumbling, because it, it blows up their whole belief system. You see, they don't know what to do because at this point, their theology said God wants to destroy sinners and now God's son comes along and he's not only talking with them, but he's eating with them. And so they either have to change their theology or they have to dismiss Jesus as not being the promised Messiah, God's son. And, and as you know, that's what many of them were trying to do. They said, well, he's just a shyster. He's, he's a, a, a pretend Messiah. But the problem they had then was what do they do with the great miracles he's doing? All these signs and wonders. And, and what did they do with his teaching, which, which was really spot on when you looked at what the scripture said? And as you look in terms of what Jesus is teaching here, what he says is he wants us to know that God loves those who are far from him. That's what we saw last week. Remember, the first parable was about a shepherd who had 99 sheep that remained, but he left them to go after the one that was lost. And verses 6 through 7 said, Uh, God said, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, the second parable was similar because there it was a woman who had lost a coin and she fervently searches for it. And when she found it, Jesus said in verse 10, in the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And now we come to this third parable where there's also joy over the repentance of a sinner. But there's a twist. Because what he says is not everybody is happy about this. Not everybody is rejoicing over the lost sinner who comes in. Look with me at Luke 15, 11. It says, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. I want you to stop and and linger over that statement for just a moment. If you're a mom or a dad, imagine your son or daughter comes to you and says, it's kind of hard to say, but you're just not dying fast enough. Uh, So could you go ahead and give me my portion of the estate? Now, as a parent, how would you respond to that? Would you immediately call your lawyer and say, I need to rewrite the will and uh, write that person out? Would, would it motivate you to start spending more of your money? I saw an RV going down the highway one day, and the bumper sticker said, we're spending our kids' inheritance. <laughs> you know, so what happens here is this, this father hears this. Now, it's surprising because it says the father gave his son his inheritance. Now, this isn't teaching us that as parents you need to be permissive. And you need to grant your children every wish and desire that they have. But what this is teaching us, the father here in this parable is obviously God the father. And what he's telling us here is that we have free will. And he lets us exercise that free will, including the ability to walk away from him. And what he says is when we walk away from God, there are consequences. There are consequences that can come. I think of what happened during the the tragic days of 9-11. You remember when the terrorist attacks happened on our nation. And after the Twin Towers fell and the Pentagon had been attacked and the plane went down in Pennsylvania, people were asking, where was God? Why did God allow these things to happen? And Anne Graham Lotz, who's the, the daughter of Billy Graham, the famous evangelist, was brought on one of the many talk shows. And Jane Clayson I thought this was a push you in a corner and get you type of question. And she said to Anne Graham Lotz, if God is good, 
How could God let this happen? To that, what do you say? And Lot's responded, I say that God is also angry when he sees something like this. I would also say that for several years now, Americans, in a sense, have shaken their fists at God. And we said, God, we want you out of our schools. We want you out of our government. We want you out of our business. We want you out of our marketplace. And God, who is a gentleman, has just quietly backed out of our national political, and public life, removing his hand of blessing and protection. She said, we need to turn to God first of all and say, God, we're sorry we have treated you this way. We invite you now uh, back into our national life. We put our trust in you. She said, we have on our coins and God we trust. And she says, we need to do that. We need to practice it. You see, so often we tell God we want freedom from him. We don't want to live under his restrictive rules. We don't want to follow the things he says. And when we do that, we forget that with that choice comes consequences. Consequences that we see here in this passage. In verses 13 through 16, it says, And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together. He went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country. And he began to be in need, and he went and he attached himself to one of the citizens of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything to eat. The wayward son's living it up, at least for a period of time. If this parable were written in our day, it would say he went out and bought fast cars, flashy clothes. He was visiting the casinos and the strip clubs. He was out having the time of his life. But what the Bible tells us is that when you party hard, when you get out from under the Father's restrictive rules, when you live under the the saying that the world does, if it feels good, do it, that that, the Bible's very clear. There, There is pleasure in sin but for a season. And then it says, come the consequences. You know, as you think about going out and taking part in that drunken bash, it's great until the car crash comes. Or the next morning when you wake up with a hangover. That hit of a drug you take is is a great high until uh, the addiction comes. Sex is great. Until the unplanned pregnancy, the sexually transmitted disease, or the person who you thought loved you uses you up and passes you on to move on to somebody else. We take part in in all these things, and when the high has passed, the hurt remains. How many of you here today would say that you've wallowed in the mud before and found out where it, it leaves you? This guy who thought he was the captain of his own destiny finds his, his ship has hit the rocks, and it's sinking, and he's broken and broke. He's gone literally from the penthouse to the pig pen. And I want you to think about how humiliating that is for this person who's a Jew. Remember, the the Levitical law said a Jew was not allowed to eat pigs. And yet here he is feeding pigs. And it says he's so hungry, he's longing after the food he's feeding to these swine. I don't know if you've ever seen how hogs are slopped, but it's, it's not a real pretty sight to watch. 
As you think of this trough and all the stuff and the the food that's floating in there, there's not even much food that's in there. It's not like he's looking and saying, oh, there's a half-eaten apple. Mm, That looks good. Let me pull that out and eat it. It says what he's longing after are carob pods. These are are stringy, leaf-like pods that grow on trees in the land of Israel. He's, he's literally so hungry that he's, he's looking and drooling over leaves off a tree like it was a sizzling plate of fajitas. That's how hungry this guy is. That's how desperate he is. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're walking on a wrong road, I want you to remember that what we're looking at here is a guy who thought the world had more to offer than his loving heavenly father did. And he found out what a dead-end road that was. And you may be here this morning saying, well, hey, you know, life's good. I haven't hit rock bottom yet. I've still got some, some money in the bank or things are still happening or I've got a friend's place I can crash in. Everything's okay. This guy didn't get immediately from walking away from his father to hitting rock bottom. There was a series of steps, each one that took him farther and farther from his father. And if you're on a journey where you're walking away from God and living according to the world's way, maybe you haven't hit rock bottom yet, but it's coming. And there is a time where you will find yourselves that each step, each series takes you farther and farther from God. And each time you get farther from God, you get out from under his hand of protection and blessing. Now, when it comes to God, I want you to notice something in this passage This kid, even though he's done all this stuff, he's still called a son. Even as he moves farther and farther away from the father, he's still a member of the family. And the Bible is clear that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, even if you turn your back on God, even if you walk away from him, you cannot lose your salvation. And if you're not sure of that, I'll be at the front after the service, and I would love to walk you through the passages that show you that. God is very clear that when we come to know him, when we are adopted as a son or a daughter in his family, we are a part of his family for all eternity. You can read Romans chapter 8, read John 10, 28 through 29, read John 5, 24. On and on, there are passages that tell you that once you come to the Father, you are his for all eternity. But as I've already said, it doesn't mean that there will not be consequences. You can't lose your salvation, but you can lose your heavenly rewards We've talked about that all throughout some previous sermons, uh, how when we die, there will be a judgment for believers, and we will uh, receive rewards for how we've lived our life for the Lord here on earth. You can lose those, not your salvation, but your rewards. You can lose God's protection. You can lose God's blessing in your life. There are consequences that come. God disciplines us when we walk away from him. But we see here he's still a son. And if you find yourself as a son or a daughter who's walked away from him as a believer, or if you're here this morning and you've not yet come to faith in Jesus and you're a person who says, I don't yet know Jesus is my Savior. Either way, what happens with the prodigal son next is what you and I need to do when we walk away from God or when we've failed to come to him. Look at verses 17 through 20. It says, but when he came to his senses... He said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. This is what's called repentance. 
There's a word in the Bible called repentance. And what that word literally means is you recognize you're on a path where you're walking the wrong way. One, maybe you've been in fellowship with God and you've turned your back on the cross and you're walking away from Jesus. Or if you're somebody who's never come to the cross and you're walking the road according to the world's way, what it says is you realize you're on a dead-end road. You're going the wrong way. And repentance means you have a change of mind that leads to a literal change of action. It's like seeing a stop sign that then has a U-turn sign next. And so what it means is you literally stop, you turn around, do a 180, and you come to the cross. So if you've walked away from God, you return to him. If you've never come to him, you turn around and come to the cross. This is what repentance is. And this, this young man here realizes he's been moving away from his father, which, remember, is God. So he says, I'm going to go back. And he says, I'm going to go back and I'm going to confess my sins. Verse 20 says, he got up, he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And felt compassion for him. And he ran and he embraced him. Now those reading this. Those hearing this story that we're reading this morning. Would have said whoa. They would have woken up at this point. If they weren't paying attention. They would have said. Did you just say that the father ran to meet the son? You see protocol in that day said that. A father never approached a child. The child always came to the father. And so. To have God the Father approach the sinner, especially one like this, to run. No self-respecting father would ever be seen running to meet a child, much less one like this who had uh, wasted the family's resources, who had sullied the family's name by the loose living that he had been doing. And yet it says God ran. He ran to embrace and meet this son. What the, what the laws, the Pharisees are listening to this said is, they're going, oh, no, no, you don't run to a son like this. Deuteronomy 21 says, you take this son outside the city and you stone him to death. That's what they were waiting Jesus to say happened. When the father sees the son coming, he gathers together a posse of people and says, let's kill this kid. Love what Warren Wiersbe says about this. He says, if the neighbors had started to stone him, they would have hit the father who was embracing him. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Of God coming and covering the wayward son. And that's what Jesus did when he went to the cross. Because what he did is he opened his arms wide as he died for us and he wrapped them around us and he died for us. His blood washed away our sins. You see, we were deserving of death as disobedient children, as wayward sons and daughters. We were deserving of the penalty of death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And Jesus wrapped his arms around us, and he took the strokes, the the beating, the nails that were due us, the spear that was thrust in his side. He died for us. He did exactly what Wearsby said. He took on the penalty of death that we deserved. Now, you may be sitting here this morning saying, Roger, you have no idea about who I am or what I've done in my life. Maybe God would die for a garden variety sinner, but not me. I'm I'm in that tax gatherer, those tax collector category. I may not know your whole story, but God does. And what God says about you and me is in Romans 5, 8, he demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
He said, no matter how far away you were, no matter what rebellion you were in, he didn't turn his back on us. He said he loved us. And he made the first move. He left his throne in heaven to come to earth, to ultimately go to the cross, to die, to pay the penalty of death for your sins and mine. There was a book written called Shields of Brass. In it, Roy Engel tells the story of a widowed mother who lost her only son during World War I. And she was especially bitter because her neighbor, who had five sons who went away to war, all of them came back alive, but her one and only son that went away died. And she was angry with God, and she was, she was pouring out her wrath, and she went to bed in, in grief one night, and, and she, had a, she had a dream. And in that dream, this angel appeared to her and said, you may have your son back for 10 minutes. What 10 minutes do you choose? Do you want him back as a little baby? Or maybe as a schoolboy just beginning school? Would you rather have him back as he finished high school as a young man? Or do you want him the very last time you saw him as a young soldier marching bravely off to war? And this mom in her dream thinks about it and she says, she says let me have him back as a little boy. But, but not as, as that cute little schoolboy or anything like that. She said, I want him in that moment of anger where he doubled up his fist and he shook them and said to me, I hate you, I hate you. She said, because in a little while his anger subsided and he came back to me, his, his dirty little face stained with tears and he put his arms around me and he said, Mama, I'm so sorry. I was naughty and I promised never to be bad again. I love you with all my heart. She said, let me have him back then. Because I never loved him more than at that moment when he changed his mind and he came back to me. Friends, if you're far from God today, if you've been shaking your fist at him, if you've been telling him, I hate you, I'm angry at you, I can't believe this or that, you're not fair, on and on, God still says, I love you. I don't love you this much or this much, but I love you this much. And he spread his arms wide on the cross, and they're still open for you today. And he says, come home. Come to me. I love you. In verses 21 through 22, we see this wayward son comes to the father. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and be married for this son of mine was dead and he has come to life again. He was lost and he has been found. And they began to be married. They began to be merry. This, this father sees the son come. He repents. He comes home. He confesses his sins. And as he says to his father, I'm not worthy to be your son. God doesn't say, well, you're right. You're not. You get to crawl across broken glass. You need to prove that you're worthy of my love. You need to you know, earn your, your way back into my graces. It doesn't say any of that. It says that he's received back. The relationship is restored. In 1 John 1, 9, we're told if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. No matter what it is you have done, God says when there is confession, 
A word that literally means to say the same thing as God says. It's not just empty words we mouth. It's when we truly exercise repentance where we realize I'm going the wrong way and we stop, we turn around, we come to God and we confess that sin. It says God forgives us. He wipes the slate clean. Notice that the father doesn't take the wayward son back as a slave. But what he does is he says, you are a son of mine. You don't have to work your way back into my graces. Friends, we are saved by grace, not by what we do. Read Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one should boast. God receives us based upon our repentance through the sacrifice that was paid as Jesus shed his blood on the cross to pay the penalty of death for my sins and yours. And this son is restored. He repents. He's brought back into the family. And as he's restored, I want you to notice it says the father gives him several things. It begins by saying he's given a robe. The, the, the Greek word used is stole. It's, it's a word that describes a long, flowing, very expensive robe. It was, it was given to people for very special occasions or as a sign of great love. Do you remember when Joseph received that multicolored robe and all his brothers were angry because it showed he was so, so loved, so favored by the father? Then it says he places a ring on his finger. This, this isn't just a piece of bling. Okay, a ring in that day was, uh, had a seal on it. It was a signet. And this was what you would impress in wax or clay. And it was how you conducted business. What the father literally does by giving the son a ring is says, here's the power of attorney and the platinum credit card. He says, you can go out and conduct business in my name. You can go and buy and sell. You can go do legal things representing me as the father. Remember, this is a son who took and wasted all of the resources. And what the father says is, you are trusted as a son with full rights and privileges. When it says he gave him sandals for his feet, it showed he was a free man and not a slave. Slaves went around barefoot in that day, but if you had shoes, it was a sign that you were a free man. And so he's, he's elevated, he's returned to the status as a son. And then it says there was a Texas-sized barbecue given, right? This is what we saw in Luke fifteen ten, where the angels rejoiced in heaven. He says, we're throwing a blowout bash because my son is home. Now look at verses 25 through 30, because not everybody wants to join in on the party. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and he approached the house, he heard the music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and he began inquiring what these things might be. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf. And because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry. And he was not willing to go in. And the father came out and began entreating him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I have been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours and you have never given me a kid. This is a little, you know, a goat that I might be merry with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with harlots, you killed the fattened calf for him. Do you know who the second son represents here? It's the religious leaders. As Jesus is telling this story, they're the religious leaders. They're the second son. 
They're the guys who are saying, um, God, we followed the rules. We've served you. The Greek text is very vivid here. It literally says, we have slaved for you. It's not fair, God. We've been the good boys. We've done all the right things. And then someone like this who's been living it up in the world walks in and says, I'm sorry, God, I want to come in. And you let them. No, no, it's not fair. You ever felt that way? You've been coming to church while others are going out and and partying or sleeping in. You've been giving your money to God's work and, and they've been out living it up squandering the resources. You've been serving faithfully and you've, you've maybe hardly ever heard thank you from somebody. And then somebody who's lived this wild, debaucherous life comes in and what do we do here at church? Woohoo! This one who was lost is saved. We celebrate their story. We're, we're all happy and we celebrate it. Have you ever felt that way? That it's not fair? It's okay, you're in church. You can be honest, right? You're, you're sitting here saying, it's not fair. Who wouldn't be angry? I want to remind you again that God is, is not a fool. And God is the one who in the end balances all things out. Hebrews 6.10 tells you this, for God is not unjust so as to forget your works. If you've been living your life for the Lord, stewarding your life and managing his resources, even the breath in your body well. God isn't saying that all of that is lost. Remember the Bema seat that we've talked about in several previous messages. The Bema seat is the judgment stand that Christians go before where you're rewarded with eternal rewards. What's a hundred years on this earth compared to eternity? It says God is not unjust. He sees and he will reward the way you've lived your life. But don't confuse the way you've lived your life with how you get into heaven. Because none of us can live a good enough life to get to God in heaven. Romans 3.10 says there is none, none righteous. No, not one. Not Roger, not you. Romans 3.23 says for all That includes you and me. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If you're somebody who says, God, I want justice. I want it to be fair. Can I tell you something? You don't. You don't want that. I don't want that. Because if God is fair and just, it means every single one of us will be lost for all eternity. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not a single person would be with God in heaven if it were not for his grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not a result of your works. Now maybe you're sitting here saying, it's okay, Roger, I, you know, I, I'm glad evil people get to go to heaven. I'm glad those wicked people will be in heaven someday. What really bothers me, Roger, is when they come to church. It's okay, we're in church, we're honest, let's have a family conversation, right? We, we come to church and then that person walks in and we go, what are they doing here? I never thought I'd see that person. And what's funny, they may look at you and go, what, what's he or she doing here? I never thought I'd see that person in church, <laughs> right? 
Or sometimes we look at them and we say, look at how they're dressed. Don't they know how to act in church? Or something's going on in church? No, they probably don't know how to act in church. It may be their first time ever here. Are you glad they're here? Are we like the religious leaders who get angry when the sinners were showing up, when the people were following Jesus, when they were listening to his teaching? Now, let me say this about Wayside Chapel. We are not a perfect church, but I am thankful that this is a church where I believe people are welcome, no matter what they look like. You know, when I was preaching this message in the first service, which you know is a lot of our uh, more senior folks, I talked about uh, this passage, and I said, you know, I know sometimes you see people who walk on property here who are dressed in a way you don't approve of, that maybe are pierced or tatted or have plugs in their ears. And I said, you know, you need to show God's love to them. And let me say something about the older crowd for a minute. They do. I, I will tell you that I see them loving when people walk into services here that don't look like them or other things. Maybe what I need to say to this crowd is when you see somebody walking around property in a suit and tie, (laughs) do you kind of look at them and go, oh, what's wrong with them, you know? (laughs) Friends, 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, God sees the heart, not the externals. Why do we major in the minors and miss what is really important? Think about when you first came to Christ if you have. Think about the grace that was extended to you. And ask yourself, do you extend that same grace to others? Do you make people feel welcome and and glad that they're here? I think of the story that's told of an old church, a traditional church that was near a college campus. And one Sunday morning, after the service had begun, this uh, college kid, who typically most college kids weren't going to this church because it was this old traditional church, he walked into the service, he came in late, he came through the back doors, and he started walking down the center aisle. And the church was full, not overflowing, but there were, you know, it was, it, there were a few seats here and there. And as he came down the center aisle, people who maybe had some room on their row moved over to the center aisle to make clear to him they didn't want him sitting with them. This kid had long hair. He was in T-shirt and shorts and sandals. And, and as every seat he came to, people scooched in. He, he ultimately found himself all the way at the very front of the church. Now, the pastor at that point was getting up to come to the pulpit. And so this, this kid is looking at the pastor about to preach, and he doesn't know what to do. So he sits down in the center aisle cross-legged. As he sits there, people in the pews all start, did you believe what he's doing? He's sitting here. Somebody needs to go tell him to move. And, and right at that moment, this silver-haired deacon stands up from the back. He's in a three-piece suit, gold watch, nice chain hanging over. He's got his cane, and he comes walking down the center aisle. And as people see this deacon coming and hear the clump, clump, of his cane as he's approaching this young man. They're all like, oh, here it comes. Some of them are saying, you can't blame him, a man of his age and station. You know, they, you know he, he's, he's just going to tell this kid, what, what do you think you're doing? And as he comes up beside the, the young man, he raises his cane up. And everybody's expecting him to maybe whack the kid on the head, <laughs> right? But what he does instead is he drops his cane to the floor. 
And with much difficulty, he lowers himself and he sits on the floor to worship with this young man so he doesn't have to worship alone. And the whole time the pastor is here in the pulpit and he he just says, you know, what I'm about to preach, you'll never remember. But what you've just seen, you'll never forget. As I said, brothers and sisters, have you forgotten what God's grace meant in your life? What it did to change you? And many of us are still in process of being changed. Ask yourself if you're willing to extend that same love and grace to other people. As we look at this passage, the religious leaders are struggling to show God's grace to others. And and the reason, I think, in many cases is because they had not yet received it themselves. In verse 29, they say, I never even got a goat to party with my friends. And the father says in verse 31, son, you've always been with me. And all that is mine is yours. You see, the father says, whose fault is that? Remember it said he divided his resources. He gave to this son, but he had an abundance of resources left. He he said to the son, all you had to do was ask for it. It it was there for you all the time, but instead you've been slaving away. You've been trying to earn my favor. Does that describe any of us here? Are we this second son? Are we slaving away under a system of religious rules and rituals and doing things to be accepting acceptable to God, and the whole time we forget to accept Jesus Christ as our Savior? You see, God wants us to have a personal relationship with his Son. It's not about checking off boxes and doing things. Yes, God wants you to have a good life. Yes, God wants you to strive to serve him. But you do that as a response of love, not as a way to earn God's love. John 3.16 said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will never perish. It's kind of illustrated by the story of a a woman who was married to a, a husband who was a very austere, severe type of man. And she did all kinds of things out of obligation and fear. He had this long list of things. Iron my shirts, make me breakfast, do this, do that. And this woman went through life in this loveless marriage with her husband. And one day this man died. And the woman was alone for a number of years, and then she met and married another man. And this this second husband was completely different. He was loving and kind. And one morning as she was up ironing this, this man's shirt so he could go to work and was making him bacon and eggs, and I'm not saying all of you should do that. My wife doesn't do that for me. Uh, <laughs> but if you want to, that's wonderful. So... But as she was going through and doing these things, she stopped for a moment. She said, she said, it just struck her at that moment. She said, I'm doing all the same things for my new husband as I did for my other one. But it's not a burden. It's a joy. Because she was doing it as an overflow of love. It was a response of love for who he was. And as you look at your own life, is that what your walk with God looks like? When you come to church, is it an obligation or is it, I can't wait to come and sing praises to my God who loves me, to sit and listen to his love letter to me, the word of God, to hear what he wants me to know. When you give sacrificially, do you give it as a response of love saying, this is so other people can know the truth that I've come to know? 
Or do you do it out of obligation? Check, I've been to church. Check, I gave some money. Check, I served in that area. God wants us to serve as an overflow of love. Not as rules and ritual and legalism like the religious leaders were doing here. You know, as Jesus is telling this parable about the prodigal son, you know who else was a prodigal son in the story? It's the religious leaders. Did you see where the father said, come in and celebrate? Remember the previous parable we looked at at the banquet where he said, come into the feast. God goes out and he entreats him. He says, come in. They looked like they were in. They were close to the Father. They were there. They were doing all the right things. But he said, you've never come in. You've never established this personal relationship with me. You've never responded to this invitation of grace. In Matthew seven twenty-two through 23, Jesus warns us this. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we in your name not cast out demons in your name perform many miracles? And he will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, they're checking all the boxes. We're doing all the right things. We're following rules and ritual. And he says, you have no relationship with me. You're still far from home. You look like you're home, but you've never come home. The son who comes home, the one who had been far from God and repented and confessed his sins, of him the father says in verse 32, we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and he has been found. As we end today, I want you to ask yourself, which son are you? I want you to ask yourself, have you come home yet? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Have you turned to God and recognized, I'm far from you. I've been living a life according to the world's ways. I've I've turned my back on you and I'm far from you. Remember the religious leader said, oh no, we've been home the whole time. We've been doing all the right things. That's not how you get to God. The Bible is clear in John 1.12 that the way we come to faith is it says, but as many as received him... To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Are you one who has received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? As you look at your life, are you like the first son? Are you far from God, trying to live on your own by the world's ways? Are you neck deep in sin? And if that's you, God says, stop, turn around, come home. Recognize that you're far from me and you need to come home. But he says, if you're like the second son this morning, you too need to come home. Maybe you're like the religious leader. You look good on the outside. You're checking all the boxes. You're doing all the right things. But he says, as you, have you ever truly received my son as your savior? Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. As we end today, I want you to think about your life. We're going to go to God now in prayer. And I want you to ask yourself, which son are you this morning? And I want you to talk to God just for a moment in your heart. I'm going to end in a moment with a prayer, and then we're going to sing a closing song of worship. But I want you to ask yourself, have you come home yet?
Have you acknowledged to God that you're a sinner? The word sin, sinner, means you've missed the mark. It means you've been less than perfect. Have you ever done anything wrong in your entire life? Yes, we all have. Maybe you took a cookie you shouldn't, you disobeyed a parent, you lied, you did something else. Sin is sin to God. It all has a penalty called death. So ask yourself, have you repented? Have you realized you need to stop, turn around, and come to the cross of Jesus Christ and accept his death in your place? And maybe you're here this morning and you've come to faith in the past, but you've turned your back on God. You've walked away from him. And what you need to do this morning is the same thing. You need to stop, turn around, and come back to God. Maybe you are not very far in your mind from God, but sin is sin. We're all far from him when we're in sin. And he says, will you stop living a life of legalism? Will you stop being all about rules and ritual and instead be about a loving relationship with my son? So I want you to think about where you are this morning. I want you to spend a moment and talk to God privately. And then I'm going to lead us in a prayer. If you've not yet come to faith, there's nothing magic about the prayer. It's just your way of telling God that you want to come home, that you want to receive his son as your savior. Let's talk to God privately for a moment and then I'll lead us in this prayer. Lord God, we thank you for this passage that tells us about your great love for us. That you were willing to leave your throne in heaven to come to earth to pursue us. You saw we were lost and hopeless and you came and you provided the way home through your son Jesus. And I pray, Father, if there's anyone here this morning who's not yet received your son, and they're ready today to say, God, I know I'm on the wrong path. That I'm ready to turn around and come to your son, Jesus. And to say to you, Jesus Christ, I need you as my savior. If that's your desire, then pray this prayer with me. Just in your head and your heart. You don't have to walk the aisle or raise your hand. You just need to say to God, God, I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes in my life. And because of that, I realize I owe a penalty. A penalty of sin called death. I thank you, Jesus, that you came and took my place. That you went to the cross and you died for me. You shed your blood to wash away my sins. I accept your gift of grace this morning. I accept you, Jesus, as my personal Savior. I thank you for that gift of new and eternal life you've given to me. I believe, Jesus, after you died on the cross, you rose from the dead three days later, showing you were who you said you were, the Son of God who conquered sin and death. I thank you, Jesus, for making me a son or a daughter of yours. It's in your precious name, Jesus, that I pray this morning. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, I'm going to be at the front after the service. Other prayer leaders will be here. We'd love to talk to you to make sure you understand that first step of faith you just took to help you to begin to grow in your walk with him. And for the rest of us who know him, who have received his grace, may we be avenues of that grace, sharing with others the good news about how they too can come home.